Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I can't tell you the response that I got from my discussion with Edward Bell Bruno. This is really a man of many talents, artist, mathematician, scientist, a guy that worked for NASA, a guy whose artwork has gotten a lot of critical acclaim. And uh, just as our conversation was uh, was heating up, we, we ran out of time, but he's been kind enough to rejoin us. Ed, thanks so much. It's great to talk with you again. Hey, thank you. It's it's a real thrill to be back on the other side of midnight. Well, and yesterday we spoke a little bit about the uh, anniversary of uh, of the moon landing. As somebody that spent a long time working for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and for NASA, and as somebody that uh, has spent a lot of time mapping out new and exciting routes uh, to the moon, what sort of a game changer was that for 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 the American space program and for space exploration in general? You mean the uh, the nineteen sixty trajectories that I found? Well, no, Apollo eleven in general. Ah, Apollo, yeah, Apollo. Um, you mean the landing on the moon? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, you know, prior to that, uh, you know, the idea that you could send anything to the moon and land people was considered to be science fiction, and um, you know, they they proved otherwise. Uh, an incredibly uh, complicated thing to do. I mean, the the largest rocket uh, ever ever built in history. Uh, it was designed by Werner von Braun, uh, who actually designed the V-2 rocket back in uh, in 1930s. And what people don't, uh, you know, we're talking about the Apollo, but, you know, the V-2 rocket was the first object ever in space, period. I mean, we talk, we, we talk about Sputnik as being the first orbiting thing, but the V-2 was the first object to ever go into space, and that was like 1940, I believe. But but after World War II, von Braun designed the Saturn V for the United States, and uh, um, was done in an incredibly fast amount of time. I mean, Kennedy—I forget the exact date of Kennedy's speech. It was like 62, 63. I, I don't know the exact date, but in a very short, in only a few years, they designed this gigantic uh, rocket. And um, uh, you know, the, the idea of building a rocket, first of all, that size was considered impo- almost impossible, but they did it, and it had to ha- it had to have the ability to to loft not just the capsule with the three astronauts in it, but the entire uh, landing craft that went down to the moon and came back again when they got to the moon. And uh, that's a huge payload to bring up, plus all the fuel and everything else. Um, now, the thing is that they, they, they launched that a number of times. Everyone was successful, and uh, it, it never failed. Um, so it was a great success. It was a huge, a huge game changer. And your the the route that you designed to the moon, which has been used multiple times now, apparently, how much time does that save rather than going the kind of the conventional route to the moon? Okay, so what happens is the the one that I found, which was a nineteen ninety one, uh, that was used to rescue the Japanese spacecraft Titan, a little lunar robotic probe about the size of a trash can. But it was the first object ever to get to the moon on this trajectory, and I was very lucky with my colleague James Miller to re- to rescue this literally. But um, uh, basically, it takes it takes a lot longer to get there. It takes three months to get there instead of three days, and you ha- you basically fly by the moon, 
you you go out of you, you go out about a million about a million miles beyond the moon then you arc around and fall back to the moon again and when you fall back you can actually go in orbit around the moon with absolutely no fuel so it takes 3 days 3 months instead of 3 days however the advantage is you can go in orbit around the moon with no fuel and and the idea you can go with no fuel just saves a tremendous amount of money because uh, anything you carry to the moon is about a million dollars a pound. Wow. Uh, no, I, I would think it would save a great deal of money. But the last time you were here, we spoke a little bit about your artwork, and uh, I've spent a lot of time over the last week perusing some of the artwork that's available on your website, and uh, people yeah. can uh, can check it out for themselves at uh, edbelbruno.com. It's uh, Belbruno with, uh, with one L. Your your artwork has, and I, I, what was interesting to me about our previous conversation is you said that you were an artist first prior to being a scientist, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I did my first painting when I was like about seven years old. And in fact, it was an oil painting. No one ever showed me how to do it. I just did it automatically. And, and I think I said last time that painting I did, I still have it. And it came out so good that it was actually used in a group show. I had in New York City at a gallery a few years ago for an entire entire group of artists and they, they the gallery wanted to use that to show off the whole show so it came out really good and it was a space scene you know and then i did another one a, a couple of years later of a of saturn it, it came out really good and it's, i've used that in art shows as well uh, so um, i've always i've always painted and i never envisioned myself ever going into mathematics or, or science and i ended up doing that which was was kind of amazing to me but uh, that's where i am now now you actually have an art show coming up in October, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have uh, art shows uh, frequently. I've had three this year already. I have one in New York City um, at, at a gallery called Agora. It's down in Chelsea, and it's going to be opening on um, October sixth. Well, that's that's pretty neat. If people want to go to that, what's the what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you just go to the Agora Gallery. It's it's agora dot com, I believe, or you, you just Google Agora and. Uh, you know, at, at around that time, they'll have the, you know, the, the, the information about it. But it's right down there, I think, on, on 20, uh, what, what is it? Uh, around 23rd uh, Street? Yeah, about 23rd. I think 25th, actually, 25th and 10th around there. But it's called Agora. It's easy to find. Now, you had just begun to tell us this story of your encounter with, in the Wyoming desert, where you were traveling with a friend and you encountered a, a UAP. Uh, br- briefly, tell us again what happened back in, uh, you know, back in, I guess it was around 1991? It was in 1991. That's right. So um, what it happened, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just briefly describe it again. Is that okay? Please, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, repeat myself, but I guess there could be some list- other sure, listeners. Sure, absolutely. New listeners all the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, when I was working at JPL back then, um, I had designed this route to the moon, and uh, the, the whole design of this was kind of strange to begin with because a lot of politics involved, and it was one of these things where I designed. I, I, I was the, I was the first. I'm not bragging, but I was the first to apply chaos theory to space travel. And uh, this and this this and my, my my theory was not appreciated at the time. I'll just leave it like that. So I found myself leaving JPL. Um, and um, right around when that was happening, um, I had the opportunity to literally uh, apply my work to um, an errant Japanese lunar probe. But back in 1991, uh, Japan wanted to be the third country in history to orbit something to the moon. It was back in 1990, actually. And it was called Hiten, H-I-T-E-N. And it had a little spacecraft on it called Hogoromo, 
And that pair went to the went over to the Earth um, at the same time, and and this was a ninety a January ninety and uh, um, and and uh, no actually it was ninety one I'm sorry it was it was no it was nineteen ninety um, excuse me everyone I'm just it's late at night <laughs> I hear you believe me um, yeah and and, um, and so um, they 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 launched up as a pair and they're orbiting the Earth and. Uh, and the idea was the small one, Hogoromo, broke off from the – departed from the other one, which which was called Haitan, about the size of a desk. Hogoromo is about the size of a grapefruit. And it, it went off to the moon on the standard route that we were talking about earlier. It takes three days to get there, but it didn't work right. And uh, Japan really wanted to uh, you know, save themselves and get something to be successful about that mission. So – uh, when I was leaving in, in basically in early 1990 and wanting to get out of there because my my theory was not, you know, being widely accepted to put it mildly, um, right around that time there was a knock on my door and uh, someone walked in who was asked by Japan to to look into my work, and and this this guy named James Miller uh, said you know I heard about your work it's pretty crazy but. Uh, I'll apply, you know, we'll try anything, right? But the moment he said that, I had this epiphany moment where suddenly I saw what to do. I've, I've never even thought about a problem like this. And I said, try this. He goes, that'll never work. And he came back the next day and said, geez, you know, it really works. So it was a brand new route to the moon where you don't go to the moon directly. You actually fly by it. And uh, you 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 go way out, about a million miles, four times the Earth-moon distance. And you come back and you're going over and around the moon. So we this was faxed over to Japan. They loved it. They a year later they actually did it in in um, in April of 1991. They actually took um, Hyten out of Earth orbit, and um, and, and this, this 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 route that I designed basically used no fuel at all, and um, it was thought to be impossible to get to the moon with no fuel. But this time they 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 tried it out and it worked. So um, it's on its way to the moon, and and this is like now in 1990. And and I, I was I went to under I underwent so much politics to show this was valid uh, that I really wanted to leave L.A. So me and my partner um, left, um, you know, a friend of mine uh, left uh, L.A. in my car. We we put my paintings in the car and drove. I drove out to uh, Minnesota. On the way out there, we went via uh, Wyoming. Um, so we we drove up up to Casper, Wyoming, and then. Uh, I wanted to go north, tour a bunch of hotels where I, um, to, to just to get, you know, just to, to rest and whatever. And uh, she wanted to take a small little road um, off to the off to the east, um, which I didn't want to do. And this is this is north of Casper, and, and uh, it, it went to Thunder Basin National Grasslands, which, which was the last place I wanted to ever go to. Um, so any of that were there, and uh, I just want to remind everyone that as we're driving there. In the meantime, the, the the Japanese spacecraft's on the way to the moon, and I had no idea if it was even going to go, it was going to even work or anything. So um, I had that out of my mind, and I'm with her, and we're driving on this side road, which is going to Thunder Basin National Grasslands. And it was about you know nine o'clock at night, and uh, it was an incredibly balmy night, and it was fog. It was a very strange night, and and not a single car passed us in either direction. And I was driving for a good solid two hours. And about 11 o'clock, uh, there's a sign saying right Wyoming. We're, we're, we're entering that area where the grasslands were, and it's nothing but sagebrush, and there was no moon that night. It was just a very strange night. So in uh, any event, the, the, the Thunder Basin goes down into a basin, and um, it's, it's just, it, goes, it just gently goes down. 
So um, you can sort of see the road go down into this basin. So I, I'm noticing is that there's a red light <clears throat> on the road uh, way off in the distance and uh, maybe about five miles in front of us. And uh, <clears throat> my, uh, my, my instinct was, well, what, what, what is a red light doing out here at 11 o'clock at night in the middle of nowhere? I mean, and, you know, far off in the distance, but it was on the road, it looked like. And um, I, I just said, you know, it's got to be a construction site, something like that. Um, I had to rationalize it was something. And my, my, my friend who was in the car didn't know what to make of it, so she didn't say anything. Um, <clears throat> as we descended down, um, I noticed the light was incredibly bright, and it was intensely red. And uh, the, the road uh, sort of leveled off as we got into it. And it was straight ahead at this point. And it was about maybe about a quarter mile in front. And um, you have to understand, there's no star. I mean, there's stars, but there's no moon. Off to the left of the mountains, and then to the right is just grassland. So um, <clears throat> this light is in front of my car, and uh, I'm driving a Jeep, a Jeep Wrangler. And uh, I'm driving, and then it's getting brighter and brighter. And I'm saying, wait a minute, this can't be a construction site. I mean, this is like really a bright thing. And then I notice that I'm maybe a few hundred feet in front of this thing, and I see there's not a light. It's, it's actually a boundary of a square. It was maybe 30 feet by 30 feet in a square. And I never saw, of course, anything like that. It was the strangest thing I ever saw. Was, and and, I, and it, so I pulled forward slowly at this point, and I got maybe 100 feet in front of it, and I saw that it was a giant boundary of a square, but it was not on the road. It was sort of off of the road, and it was on the back of something else, which was much bigger. It was on a black object that was also squarish. And it was probably like maybe 60 feet by 60 feet. It was, it was like a side of a building. Um, and I'm just sitting there staring at this thing with my friend and saying, what the heck is that? I mean, nothing in my life ever remotely looked anything like that. Um, as we're sitting there, after about 10 minutes, it, it rose up off of the ground. It was silent. And then it turned sideways. It, so it, it turned sideways and what we were looking at was the back of an object that was about 120 feet long, and it was a giant rectangle. Um, it was glowing blue in the middle, and um, I, I just, my jaw dropped. I mean, it didn't make any noise, and uh, my friend didn't say anything either because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't doing anything dangerous. It mm. was just, it was beautiful, as a matter of fact, but I never saw, of course, anything like that. And if anybody's ever seen a rectangle, let me know. Um, so it, I, I didn't want to get out, and so my friend says, why don't you get out and go under it? And I said, you get out and go under I'm not <laughs> going to get near that thing. So um, I sat there, and then it slowly went off, and it went very, very slowly off the side of the road. And, and it was up in the air like 100 feet up, and it went north to where the mountains were. But before it moved, it, it, it went up and down in front of us like it was doing a dance or something. It was like a show. It was, like, it was almost like a greeting or something. And then it just gently went off, and uh, um, I got back. I got out of my car when the thing was far enough off in the distance, and I said to myself, "You couldn't write a screenplay like this. I mean, this is like something out of the movies. What the heck was that?" So I, I got back in the car and uh, grabbed the steering wheel, and I was just absolutely lost in thought because I'm a scientist, and right. I never saw anything like that. So I drove. And um, I just lost track of where I was. And my friend is shaking me. And she's saying, um, 
they're going to kill us. And she's screaming at the top of her lungs. And I'm like, I was so lost in thought. I wasn't noticing that there's this incredibly bright, pulsating white light on the left of the road. This is about 10 minutes after we left this other thing, which was pretty innocuous. It was beautiful, but it wasn't threatening at all. This was threatening. So I started to slow down and uh, um, to the left of the road, there were a bunch of looked like people standing around and the ground was pulsating white light. And I started to stop and my friend was screaming. She just, she said, they're going to kill us. We have to get out of here. And she goes, I'm going to jump out if you, if you, if you stop this car. So I'm saying to myself, there's going to be a woman running through mm-hmm. the grasslands where I'm sitting here. God knows who those people are on the left, whatever they were. And uh, so I just slowly went forward, and we drove north to uh, Gillette, Wyoming, which, which went north from right. Right was right around the corner. Um, it was the most incredible thing I ever, I ever saw. And so I get to, we got to the hotel. This is, this, I only realized this a few months later. Um, I'm, I'm saying to her as we drive into this town, Gillette, I'm saying it's so late. We're never going to get a hotel. It's impossible. We're never going to get one. Because it's like four in the morning, right? Meanwhile, we did find a hotel. There was one open. And um, I, we get the hotel. And it occurred to me that when we ran into that thing back, uh, back on the road, it, it was like around 11 o'clock at night. And Gillette was only 40 miles away on a good-sized road. So it did not take us four hours or five hours to drive there. So it was that typical missing time people talk about. Right. So I don't know why that happened. It just did. Um, now – uh, there's a lot more I could say about this, but I'm, I, I can't. But um, what happened was we ended up uh, driving back to where, you know, back to um, to St. Paul, Minnesota, where I ended up settling for a while. And um, when I got there, Carl Sagan, a very famous scientist, you know, uh, he, he asked me to write up uh, my story of uh, how I found this trajectory to rescue the the Japanese spacecraft. And this is like three months later. And um, I'm, I'm writing up the story for the Planetary Report, which is published by the Planetary Society. And uh, I get to the very last line of the end of it, and I said, on October 2nd, 1991, the Japanese spacecraft arrived at the moon on that new trajectory that, that, that I found, which was very exciting for me, right? And I said, it got there, and that was the date, you know, and I put it down. And then I said, wait a minute, October 2nd, that was, that was exactly when I saw that thing on the road. It was October 2nd, about that time. If you translate the times, it all corresponded. So uh, when, when I realized that, it was one of those moments in my life where I was absolutely just, you know, it was like, wow. what is going on, right? That That is wild. Now, initially – you told your story uh, anonymously, if I'm if I understand correctly, and then ultimately you chose to come out and you know identify your yourself with that story. Why did you choose initially not to come forward under your real name, and then why did you change your mind? Um, well, that's that's a, that's a valid point. Uh, so um, you know, there's a stigma with this kind of thing, and. Uh, um, so uh, basically, like anybody else, I was a bit frightened to say anything. Um, but on the other hand, I am a scientist. Uh, I, I study science. I'm a mathematician. I'm about as hardcore a scientist as you can get. I mean, a lot of people might do social sciences or whatever, but right. I do physics, mathematics. 
So for me, I saw what I saw, and I didn't want to, like, not talk about it. So I did talk about it uh, to this one organization, and uh, um, but I did, didn't want my voice disguised because I didn't want to be able to be talking about this. Um, however, um, what happened was um, um, I got a little bit more brave as time went on. And, and second, um, as, you, as everybody knows listening, um, there's been more and more sightings going on over the years of, of objects which is now being reported by the military and where there's congressional meetings going on. In fact, one of my colleagues at Princeton University, uh, David Spurgel, is currently leading the NASA effort to look into this kind of thing. So it's, it's now more or less out in the open. Uh, but but before this happened now, um, a few years ago, it was heading in that direction very slowly, and I saw that, and I and the stigma was sort of going down, so I felt more comfortable to talk about it. Uh, I've heard you say elsewhere that you thought that maybe after this experience that it was possible that humans were not in prime control of this planet. What do you mean by that exactly? <clears throat> well, um, uh, so <laughs> it's a very good point. Um, the, uh, um, the, the, I, I think the, so there's a lot of uh, fear associated to anything as, about UAPs. A lot of people who are very brave or curious or, or don't have no ax to grind, they have no problem with it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big universe. There's, there's trillions of stars. And, you know, perhaps something could have found its way here at some point in the past. I mean, I, I, I don't think the planets like Earth with water are, are very common. I think they're incredibly rare. And, and, and um, if there is life out there, they probably want to find these kinds of planets. So the idea that something can make its way here is, is not particularly surprising. Um, so uh, um, from my experience... Uh, since I, no one has come forward to tell me about what – I've, I've asked people, by the way, have you, has anybody ever seen a rectangle like that? No one's ever come forward to say yes. And, 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 and from the coincidence of the timing and all that, it seemed pretty clear to me that something was going on that was not um, anything I understood. So, so therefore, there must be some kind of um, intelligence here. That's not human based. It, you know, it just seems to be the case um, because otherwise uh, I would be able to explain that, which I can't. And um, unless can, someone can tell me that there's a, some secret programs making things like that, that's another story, but I don't think so. Uh, so um, it, it leads me to believe that it's highly possible, although you can't guarantee it, but possible uh, based on my experience and based on what's going on with the UAP study now that there, there is, there is um, perhaps some kind of uh, uh, intelligence here that is not human-based. Um, and I think that's a reasonable suggestion. Mm. It's not, not been proven, but this is, this is, I think, why we have a UAP study, why the Congress is interested, why NASA is now taking a very active interest in this, is because these UAPs they've seen uh, over aircraft carriers or surveilling our nuclear sites and things of this nature – has gotten the attention of the United States government, and they want to find out, well, what are these things, right? So uh, what I saw was clearly weird and very unusual, and it, so it leads me to believe that uh, um, it's possible that there could be some 
form of advanced intelligence here, um, which doesn't particularly surprise mm. me because, uh, after all, it's a big universe. Yeah, that's for sure. Ed, we're going to have to end it there. Hopefully, uh, maybe we can uh, we could chat again in, before your New York City art show in October. I'd like to come down and try and see it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would as well. If people want to see more of your art, they can go to edbelbruno.com. Uh, Ed, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I hope I didn't go over for you. Uh, We're, no, perfect. You're perfect, and I'll look forward to chatting again soon. It was a real thrill, and you have a great show. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. You're very kind. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 